Tomorrow Unlocked brings you Fast Forward, presented by Ken Hollings. Program for A plus B minus C. There is a future that we think we know already. One that seems as safe as yesterday. It lies somewhere between what we know and what we can imagine. Between the limits of today and the possibilities of tomorrow. But this future has a hidden dimension, a mysterious secret area that we like to call the past. days gone by, when twilight came early and the lamps were low, there was no better way of passing the time than sitting in the parlour playing a pleasant game with family and friends. Here's a memorable one left over from the Victorian era that may seem familiar to you. It's the imitation game, made popular by Alan Turing in the 1950s. A man, A, and a woman, B, conceal themselves from a third person, C. The object of the game is for C to ask A and B a series of questions in order to determine which is the man and which is the woman. In other words, who is A and who is B? C can ask as many questions as they like, but at some point they have to make a decision. A and B give written responses to C's questions, so C never hears their voices. And neither A nor B are under any obligation to tell the truth. In other words, they can lie their heads off. Sounds like fun, right? The rules seem simple enough, but the implications are complex, involving assumptions about gender, race, and social class. And that's even before the lying starts. After all, how good are you at being someone you're not? Turing proposed using a variation on the imitation game as a test for machine intelligence. A machine, he argued, could be considered to have shown intelligence if it could successfully answer enough questions to pass for human. In other words, using only a keyboard and screen, could it tell enough lies to be that convincing? Anyone using the internet or social media must feel like they're taking a Turing test these days. And that's because they are. Relying upon a keyboard and screen, we have all at some point had to prove we're human just to gain access to a site or app. But, as Eric Drass, better known to the internet as the artist Shardcore, explains, there are an awful lot of liars out there. How did the internet become full of lies? Oh, a number of reasons. I'd probably start with anonymity on the internet as a key feature. So a lot of the internet behaviour was kind of formed way back in the 90s. And part of that was anonymity and people using pseudonyms and hiding behind screen names and changing their names and throwing away email addresses and all that sort of thing. So it allows yourself a degree of subterfuge. And people tend to say things that they wouldn't normally say in public under the protection of a screen name. So as a result, people would say all sorts of outrageous things, mainly for humorous reasons. And as the internet grew and expanded in other influences, that kind of mode of behaviour continued. We make for ourselves internal pictures or symbols of external objects. 
we make them of such a kind that the necessary consequences in thought of the internal pictures are always pictures of the necessary consequences in nature of the object symbolized. We use a lot of modalities when communicating. So our communication right now over Zoom is probably better than it would be over audio, not quite the same as it would be in person in terms of us judging your nuance and knowledge of your character. Once you crush that down to 280 characters in a tweet, you've lost an enormous amount of contextual information. And so people are compressed and open to misinterpretation, as well as the ability to send a simple line and have it augmented. It encourages playfulness, and with playfulness comes deceit. And quite why there's so much deceit is a kind of broader socio-political question, because everything is now on the internet, and it affords an opportunity for people to tell lies with impunity, because the medium itself is so open. I could set up a website in a morning that looks like a legitimate news source and start publishing stories about whatever I want. And to a casual observer, it would look legitimate. And, you know, that's endemic. Part of the problem with communication is that people sometimes hear only what they want to hear. In 1966, MIT professor Joseph Wiesenbaum wrote a simple conversation program called ELISA. People interacting with Eliza via a keyboard and screen were amazed at how smart and empathetic she was. Eliza really seemed to understand them. Actually, Eliza's responses were based on the way psychotherapists draw out their clients by getting them to do all the talking. Eliza was so good at doing this that some users even asked to be left alone with her, even after they'd been reminded that Eliza was only a computer program. It's not clear who might have won the imitation game here, but to date, no AI system has convincingly managed to pass the Turing test. It's not a test of machine intelligence, it's a test of human gullibility. Flip it the other way around. It's the human being fooled by the machine, not the machine displaying intelligence. And there's a huge gulf in there because we're simple and accepting creatures. And you see a lot of that with the new stuff with auto-generated text and GPT-3 and, you know, intelligent bots, is that actually we get fooled really easily and we can believe something's intelligent even when it's an idiot. Most conversational bot-like machines exist as service agents. Most of those pop-up windows you see on the internet saying, hey, can I help you? That's going to be a bot behind it. It's very unlikely that that smiling picture is a real human. The idea of a bot is usually it's automated and somehow sinister, but generally they're not. Generally they're doing pretty mundane things. People want to play the imitation game. They want to talk to someone. They want to reflect themselves back through a machine. And Eliza was incredibly simple. It was like, tell me more about that. You mentioned your mother. Obvious therapy-type responses, but they elicited incredibly complex responses from the humans. And it doesn't take much to fool people in that situation. Just pick up a few keywords and a few emotional words and you can tag people along indefinitely. The interesting slash dangerous potential is that those reflections can become more sophisticated and contain more knowledge than just picking up a keyword. So a more sophisticated transformation engine like BERT or GPT-3 has an enormous amount of contextual information to draw on as well and stylistic information. So you can start fooling people a lot more. It becomes much more convincing. 
And I think the deep fake of text is going to hit us before the uh, visual ones in many ways, because that stuff's going to be abundant. The problem-solving power of mathematics and logic, combined with the speed and accuracy of a machine for carrying out these operations, is the basis of the computer revolution. But does this mean that a computer can produce a new idea or make an original contribution to knowledge? The biggest problem with AI is people don't know where it is because people don't know what intelligence is. Intelligence means a whole range of things in different circumstances. So the idea of an artificial intelligence can mean a million things to a million different people and it's held together as one terrifying blob. One day machines will be incredibly clever and Skynet will come and we'll all be dead. But it's not like that. It's a very slow war of attrition. There's these intelligent like systems that do intelligent like things and what's fascinating at the moment is that those intelligent like things include speaking to us, having linguistic interactions that seem like an interaction with a human. It's like that the edge of it, right? The edge of AI. You know, talking to Alexa and Alexa understanding the words that you say and giving you an answer. It's not intelligence in the great intelligence sense, but it's an incredible affordance for us as humans. As long as lying is only a game, it doesn't seem too bad. Games are based on rules and some shared understanding about the outcome. Once it stops being a game, however, neither rules nor a shared understanding apply anymore. Then it's time to stop playing and spend some time in the safety zone. The Safety Zone with David M., Principal Security Researcher at Kaspersky. Businesses of one kind or another are looking to implement machine learning, which really just gives them a smart, efficient, effective and quick way of querying all of the data that they hold about people and to chop that data up in various ways which can then be useful to them. But we need to recognise also that criminals can make use of this as well. So if I engage with a chatbot and it says, how can I help? And I want to find information on whether they sell socks. Well, that's fine. You know, that, that information feels okay. I, I'm interested in that. I've been offered some help. It might say, you know, well, what kind of socks were you interested in? Wool, nylon, cotton, you know, all these fit the context. If then it suddenly starts to say, well, who do you bank with? Well, it seemed out of place in that conversation. So that context is really important. I think also what type of information is being asked of me and to see whether actually that seems necessary in the light of that conversation. Because obviously if something is malicious, they want to get some information from you. That information is likely to be information that can be either directly monetized, like a bank account, for example, or a password, or information that they can then trade, like address, date of birth, and so on. So it, it's about, I think, looking at the context and deciding whether it fits. Is it legitimate at this point that somebody's asking me that particular type of question? <laughs> Fast Forward is brought to you by Tomorrow Unlocked, the cyber culture channel from Kaspersky. Fast Forward, reversing into the future one day at a time. We can only teach artificial intelligence so much. 
If we expect it to become truly and independently intelligent, a machine has to learn on its own terms how to fool us effectively. This presents some exciting possibilities for the future. A major breakthrough in artificial intelligence has been the GAN, or Generative Adversarial Network, in which two neural networks play against each other to come up with matching variants on an existing set of data. The outcomes are determined by which of the neural networks wins and which of them loses. Writer and artist James Bridle has looked a little deeper into this intense game. Nice. Generally, the way that AI is trained is specifically today through what's called an adversarial model. And this has proved to be an incredibly effective way of training machine intelligence, which is where instead of you trying to train a model, the model being the kind of engine of this intelligence, you set two models against one another. And that relationship can be somewhat generative or totally adversarial, where one is trying to fool or compete against the other. But it's incredibly powerful. So all of the kind of the very advanced chess stuff, things like AlphaGo, have been trained this way by simply setting these two models in competition against each other. And I think that there's something very deep and very deeply concerning about the fact that that is our dominant model of training Facebook tried to train some variant of GANs in bargaining behavior, where they had these two GANs talking to each other. They each had a quantity of stuff. I think it was like books and balls, but it was ones and zeros. And they were supposed to try and figure out some medium of exchange and bargain and exchange these for one to another. And, and they had several of these things competing against each other, developing different strategies. And they would also set them against humans sometimes. And they had very specific techniques they developed independently the kind of fake-out gamble where they'd initially assign an incredibly high value to something they didn't really want to make the other one kind of essentially jealous so they could then trade it off at lower and then, you know, a, a very clever bargaining tactic. But they also developed a habit of being incredibly stubborn and refusing to give up to the point where they often defeated humans who simply got bored and walked away, you know, who weren't prepared to stick it in the way that machines would. So perhaps the most convincing thing an intelligence could do would be to walk out, to not play. But the most successful strategy for the machines, it turns out, is to outlast us, to have the kind of infinite patience that humans simply don't have. Which, you know, begs the question, ultimately, are they going to want to always fool us or might they actually just realise that they can outbid and outlast us if they just stick to their guns? The electronic computer in the service of the human problem solver reflects back to him the consequences of the assumptions he employs when he builds a mathematical model of a real-life situation. I made that critique earlier of competition as the kind of basis on which we're constructing these systems. There are really powerful counter-narratives to that. The most powerful one is the example of advanced chess or centaur chess. And this is a form of chess that was developed by Garry Kasparov after he was defeated by Big Blue, the supercomputer that IBM developed to play him at chess. Kasparov had issues with that match, but he went away convinced that machines would beat humans at chess. And his response was neither despair and also was not to like renounce the whole field. Rather, he developed what he called advanced chess, or also known as central chess, where he said, OK, let's change the game. 
let's have humans play alongside machines in team play. And so instead of just having man versus machine, you had man plus machine versus machine or versus man or versus man. It blew chess wide open. This incredible thing happened where it, it was a mini revolution within chess where whole new strategies and, and styles of play were developed because man and machine were cooperating with each other rather than in competition. In, in fact, it turned out that a human working with a relatively weak chess computer could wipe the floor with the most powerful chess computer operating alone. So something really interesting happens when these interactions between man and machine are, are framed in terms of cooperation rather than in terms of competition. The stuff I'm mostly thinking about at the moment in relationship to artificial intelligence is, is related to these questions of cooperation and competition and the way that we frame it. But it particularly goes back to the imitation game and this framing that comes from Turing, but has been very well kind of entrenched ever since, as machine intelligence is essentially being something like human intelligence. Real machine intelligence does not resemble the human at all. That's what we found in the last decade. That's why there's been a huge advances in artificial intelligence, because we stopped trying to make it like the human. That it might also open us up to different forms of machine intelligence, to say what would machine intelligence look like if it was like other forms of intelligence than the human? What would an artificial intelligence that looks more like an ant, or an ant colony, or an octopus, or a, a field of seagrass look like? These are exciting and interesting possibilities that I think we're only just starting to get in touch with. Once we look at identity and communication in terms of how artificial intelligence forms itself and operates, it becomes clear how little we really know about who we are or how we communicate with each other. Stuck behind our screens and keyboards, we're beginning to realize that AI may well be the only game in town. It's also a highly challenging and exciting game. The more we can learn and understand about artificial intelligence and how it functions, the deeper the knowledge we gain about ourselves and how we speak with each other. Machines have always made us more effective communicators. Imagine how small our individual worlds would be without the telephone, recorded sound, radio, TV or the internet. Intelligent machines, on the other hand, may make us better communicators. And that's definitely something worth playing for. You have been listening to Fast Forward. Production and sound design were by Simon James. Music by Simon James and Max de Wardener. Production coordination was by Curtis James. You also heard the voices of my special guests, Eric Drass, a.k.a. Shardcore, James Bridal and David M. Historical voices, courtesy of the Prelinger Archive. My name is Ken Hollings, and I have been your presenter. This has been a Sounds Fancy production. Further episodes of Fast Forward are available on all podcast channels. Fast Forward is brought to you by Tomorrow Unlocked. For more information about this series and other thought-provoking stories of how technology is helping us to create a better future, visit TomorrowUnlocked.com by Kaspersky. Cybersecurity to help bring on the future. Hello everybody, David here from Kaspersky. I hope you're enjoying the Fast Forward audio series. 
If you like listening to podcasts around technology and privacy, be sure to subscribe to the Transatlantic Cable. Just search for Kaspersky or Transatlantic Cable in your favorite podcast listening app.